Welcome to Political OD, episode 34. Summer is normally a quiet time uh, for British politics, but with Boris Johnson announcing that he will eventually leave number 10, the race is on for a new leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister by September. It's been a busy few weeks, Owen. Yes, it's traditionally silly season. It's the time when not much happens. Uh, This Conservative leadership contest has been unfolding. We've had debates, we've had presenters collapsing, whether we've had a lot of substance behind the debates is another matter because, you know, the, the, the contestants, they're wanting to sort of draw out differences between them in terms of economics. They're both kind of going for the mantle of Thatcherism and trying to prove that they're heirs to Thatcher in their own particular ways. You know, but when we when we delve behind this, we're 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 sort of uh, digging and, and and searching for for policy differences and, and and for substantial differences between the candidates. The Thatcher illusion uh, a bit lost on me. It's almost <clears throat> it's almost fifty years since Thatcher, and we live in a very different world. And the issues that the two candidates are having to uh, look at. Uh, are really quite different uh, in terms of um, uh, Labour Party, in terms of national economy, in terms of uh, global outlook. Um, The problems, while some of the same names are there, uh, such as Russia, uh, okay, Soviet Union back in the the 70s, and there's war, which is Russia again, and the fight for democracy and freedom for one nation against uh, an authoritarian state. It, it, it just isn't the same Britain it was then. It isn't the same Europe. It isn't the same world. Um, so I think allusions to Thatcher are shorthand um, to try and conjure up an image of a strong leader with big ideas. But I don't think that either candidate has really matched that illusion at the moment. Yes, well, that, that that's right. And I suppose, I mean, we're going to be talking uh, later about another sort of iconic figure in unionist politics, David Trimble, who who passed away uh, this week. But when you're thinking about conservative politics, perhaps the great defining icon is still Margaret Thatcher, even though we are now going back 50 years, as you say, to kind of the the point in her career when she was coming to um, to prominence. So it it is important among uh, the Tory grassroots to kind of court this idea that, 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 that you would do what Thatcher would do in, in, a, in a certain uh, similar circumstance, I suppose. But there's also been a kind of a feeling among many Conservative members that perhaps Boris Johnson didn't emphasise the free market credentials of the Conservative Party. You know, he didn't cut taxes. He wasn't careful with spending, that there was a different form of conservatism emerging during that Johnson period. And so there's always, where, where where one leader goes before, there's always a certain reaction to that, even if both the contenders at the moment were very much pivotal in his government anyway. I think this is where the, the kind of Thatcher thing and the tax and spend thing and uh, the, the kind of emphasis on, on free market economics and, and looking to prove your credentials in that area has come from. The two big issues that are sitting uh, before them, uh, uh, housing, uh, which hasn't been ta- is always talked about by politicians, but has never been really tackled. 
uh, to any great extent. Thatcher uh, opened up the rental market, uh, at least, uh, and released the property-owning democracy. That seems to be getting further away with the cost of houses, and that's a matter of supply-demand. There isn't enough supply, the demand's there, and so prices are, are rising. But the one area that Boris certainly hasn't tackled uh, was planning. There were big uh, talks of reforming planning uh, to enable houses to be built in uh, certain areas. Simple little ideas like uh, you know, a mile around a, a railway station should be uh, fairly open for, for uh, housing planning. Uh, just got knocked back. The, the NIMBY section of the Conservative Party led, of course, by Theresa May. And the other big issue, of course, is the NHS, which was a problem before COVID anyway. And God knows in Northern Ireland, we know it was a significant problem here in Northern Ireland. The, you know, the health service was already in crisis before COVID. It's worse now. You know, the lockdown hangover is, is most obvious in the NHS. And the simple things like just seeing your doctor, which is probably what annoys more people than anything else, is a problem that just some, simply doesn't seem to have an answer at the moment from either of the two candidates. Yes, that uh, inaccessibility of your GP, the fact that you have to go through multiple, multiple kind of hurdles to, to actually speak to a GP, and that even then it's not a, just a matter of course. And, and this thing about about waiting lists and just the pressure on the NHS, because you know we, we hear that even though it's the summertime when traditionally just like politics slows down the NHS slows down a bit and and it's not under so much pressure that just hasn't materialized this year the numbers have kept coming and it's almost you know just remained in a in a kind of a crisis state so how do you do something about that is it even possible because we've got this sort of monolithic organization that was uh, formed in the 1950s to deal with health problems that have and, and a population that has changed in, in the interim, we've got uh, an, an aging population, we've got ever more uh, sort of complicated health problems to deal with. I, I noticed a story this morning, Rishi Sunak, saying that he would get to grips with NHS waiting lists, he'll do this, that or the other thing. You know, it's a Sisyphean task and, and you can certainly try to do something about it, but uh, it, it's going to get more difficult all the time unless there's you know, just a, a complete rethink about how we provide yeah. health services and, and what, what exactly that would be. I I couldn't venture to suggest, but I, I just think it's such a difficult area, such yeah. a complicated area. It, it's almost beyond the wit of, um, of, you know, your sort of average politician to come up with a solution to it, really. Well, I think the waiting list is actually a symptom of a much deeper issue. We know that in Northern Ireland because... There have been how many reports over 20 years and still nothing is done. And you know, we were told Robin Swan had a plan because we still haven't seen this great plan that's ready, sitting on the shelf, just to be taken down and spring into action as soon as whatever uh, happens up at Stormont. I, I just struggle to know that that or to believe that that's actually there. Um, well, whatever problems as well that there are in Great Britain, they're much worse in Northern Ireland because yeah. we're 20 years behind and we haven't implemented any of those reforms. So the fact that they're struggling in England and Wales and Scotland um, gives you a sort of an idea of just how bad it is here. Complicated, <laughs> uh, and complicated things are, but yeah. here we haven't even begun that process of reforming and, and yeah. trying to, to make 
the uh, service that's fit for the modern era. So they'll, they'll obviously have to deal with issues like, you know, the, the, the catchphrases like levelling up and all the rest and trying to make some sense of what that actually ever meant, if it means anything. But, you know, housing, housing planning, I, I would put planning above housing uh, simply because I think, again, if you're looking at the fundamental issue, it's planning, it's not a housing issue, shortage, it's a, it, it's a, it's a issue of being able to build the houses and that's a planning problem it's not a housing problem uh, and the nhs which again is is something where there are fundamental issues in terms of the service process um, that isn't working um, and uh you can you can talk all you like and you can throw as much money as you at it as you like but until you actually deal with process difficulties you're not going to reform that the other issue of course that is going to come in quite quickly is the protocol once Parliament gets back up, uh, that will be resting uh, in the House of Lords. Um, and of course, the whole relationship with the EU is going to be a big factor um, for a whole, whole host of reasons, energy. Um, uh, we didn't mention cost of living crisis because I think that's one of those big issues that is actually just going to come down to uh, money and, 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 and a simple... Uh, a treasury solution, if you like, rather than uh, anything that can practically be done, because these are global pressures in terms of, of supply of goods and particularly in the energy market. Um, it's going to be hard to see. Uh, although, again, the lack of long term planning in Britain in terms of uh, the, the um, incredible uh, inability to defend uh, fracking, the uh, winding down, the, the inability to build nuclear fast enough. Um, it just uh, again, long-term planning is not something that has been done well. Um, the protocol issue, of course, very new issue because we've only just left uh, the, the EU and the protocol is one of those hangover bits. Um, but I thought it was interesting this past week uh, on two fronts. One was the House of Lords report, uh, the committee report, which basically largely confirmed the British position on what needs to be done. Uh, going forward in terms of uh, the, grace the, the, the so-called grace periods uh, will need to become a, a permanent fixture. Those, of course, are being challenged legally by the EU at the present time. So that's, uh, that, uh, you know, uh, in negotiations, we know where the EU stands on that point. But the interesting part of the, of the House of Lords report is that with the bill coming to the House of Lords, are they going to completely ignore what their own committee what a committee of the House has said in relation to the requirements for the protocol bill. Um, and that, I think, is going to be very interesting. And the second part is in amongst the, the numbers from the University of Liverpool poll, uh, polling earlier this week, some of which I thought was dealing with issues that quite clearly the, the public in Northern Ireland don't care about, uh, because... They told us in their in one of the first uh, items on their on their polling uh, that it's health and the economy that's important, and the protocol obviously relates to economic well-being in Northern Ireland. That largely uh, both uh, well, practically all the parties, to a lesser extent, alliance in the SDLP. There was a, a an overwhelming majority, uh, or people who were indifferent, to actually take the the view that goods coming from Great Britain don't need checks. Sure, there's checks needed if they're going to go on to the Republic. Uh, the goods should be flowing freely within the UK without impediments. 
public and, if you like, political viewpoints seem to be tending towards the UK government's position. Yeah, well, that's right. And in terms of all the practicalities, people do seem to be developing a consensus around what needs to happen. And you mentioned the grace periods. The grace periods, of course, need to continue for as long as they're needed. But in the long term, goods from Great Britain should move to Northern Ireland without impediment. And if they're moving on into the EU, that's a different matter. And maybe they need checked at that point. And, and people, you know, when, when you put these things to them in a, in a reasonable way or, or you strip the politics away and you put these things uh, to people, then they will agree with that. And all of the, the kind of political evidence is pointing to that as well. Now, the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill wants to take things in that direction. So where exactly you then have this kind of overlay of political attitudes where people then divide into whether they... Mm-hmm you know, instinctively feel pro-EU or instinctively feel pro-UK and then therefore take a kind of an adamant stance on this one way or another. That's a different matter and that's a, that's an argument for another day. But, you know, if you want to take it back to, to, to the Conservative leadership debate, that issue hasn't really been explored very much. I mean, we suspect that uh, Liz Truss is kind of more in line with Ulster Unionist sentiment in that she's engaged with issues about the union and the Northern Ireland Protocol. She introduced the the, the Protocol Bill to the House of Commons, and she was rumoured certainly to favour more strident action against the sea border than than Boris Johnson, whereas Sunak um, was believed to be among the politicians that urged uh, Boris Johnson first to refrain from triggering Article 16, and we've covered that in, in previous podcasts, David, but also to to sort of not want confrontation with the EU. So, you know, how that will all come through in September and and, and the the sort of political skirmishes, which will will come up again at that time, we we will have to see. But, uh, you know, you've got to suspect that there'll be an almighty bum fight uh, once again, once this gets back into the political arena, whereas in the polling and in the sort of evidence sessions of the House of Lords, things seem more straightforward uh, uh, when, when you're kind of stripping them of, of this uh, political angle. One of the interesting bits that was highlighted was the, the phrase feast or famine in terms of businesses, uh, where if you if you were exporting, uh, had your business uh, trade with uh, the Republic, things were good. If you had your business trade uh, in, in any way to the rest of the UK, things were bad. So, sounds a bit like one-on-one. You know, if you create barriers uh, to trade, then it's bad for your economy and bad for your business. I thought, again, the point was very much made in relation to these are common sense things that need to be done. Yes, and a lot of the things that have been sold as benefits of the protocol are, in actual fact, um, to do with the diversion of trade, things like, you know, goods coming through Northern Ireland ports simply because the protocol hasn't been implemented properly and then making their way to, to Southern Ireland, that's been portrayed as a boon, whereas actually it's nothing of a sort. It's just it's just goods finding another uh, way into a market that's been cut off from the UK thanks to um, the intransigence of the EU. And by, by the same token, uh, a lot of the business that's been generated for Northern Ireland companies on a kind of north-south basis is 
trade that was otherwise, you know, going to, to, to different British companies. So the overall economic picture, of course, is, is going to be damaging. And one of the things actually that I think seemed to come out in Lord Jay's report is that we still don't have proper data on on exactly yeah. what that effect is and that's it that's you know at the start we we gave excuses for that and we said well you know in the past goods moving between northern ireland and great britain haven't been treated as exports and that's the reason and that was you know a fair summation at the time but we've had you know six years now since brexit and this has been coming for quite a, a few of those years and then we've had the protocol um, since uh, 2021. So we should be getting to grips now with exactly how much damage this has done. And we've seen bits and pieces for, of, of that from the government. We've seen lots of um, stories in the latest one, you know, God help you if you've got a baby because you're not going to be able to get baby food uh, if the EU has its way. But we're still not getting a kind of macro picture of how all this lands and what exactly the overall effects are. No, I, I, you've you've also picked up noises from uh, sources that might have otherwise not been considered to take the view that it was time to trigger Article 16. Do you think this is because some people now think that with the protocol bill likely, and let's say it's likely to get through all stages and the secondary legislation, uh, the, the regulation uh, coming from that will basically give practical effect, well, make, make make the protocol work in some ways, but not to the satisfaction of those who want more EU. Do you think the, the idea of triggering Article 16 is simply because it might be the only way to force the EU into a negotiation room? Yeah, that does seem to be the case. And we've had this sort of retrospective revisionism about Article 16 because, you know, we don't have to look too far back in time uh, to a point where if you were slightly pro-EU, our triggering Article 16 was the absolute end of the world. It was a act, it was almost like an act of war by the British government. It was just the most horrific thing that they could possibly do. And America were going to uh, slam us for it. The EU was going to retaliate. Um, we were going to sever our relationships with the Republic of Ireland and, then, and, and everything else. And, you know, now we've had Hillary Benn saying that uh, we should have triggered Article 16 before going down the legislative route. And I saw in the paper only this morning that Bertie Ahern is now um, an advocate of triggering Article 16. Oh. So, you know, what, what, where, where has this come from? It's, it's come from the fact that actually all along Article 16 was part of the protocol and the conditions for triggering it had been um, met. And I mean, that was undeniable, and, but the opposition to it was this, again, this sort of knee-jerk uh, pro-EU uh, kind of sentiment that we've seen all along. And it, if you scratched it, it didn't actually amount to anything or, or certainly a logical argument. And yes, the fact that, you know, th this puts you back into negotiation uh, with the EU and rather than get a, a solution to the problems uh, that there are with the protocol, a clear cut solution that uh, sort of takes the practical difficulties out of it, you're, you're then 
sort of sitting down and thrashing things out and you get some sort of uh, arrangement in the middle um, that may result in, in some EU being added back in. So I think that's a pretty fair summary. Yeah, and in particular, as, as the EU, in triggering its legal processes, uh, are basically uh, taking the earlier rigorous implementation line to the protocol rather than you know, a practical negotiation stance, which, of course, um, uh, the EU Commission hasn't provided Sashlevik the, 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 the proper authority to actually negotiate in any practical sense. Yes, and, and we've actually we've not heard a critique about that from people who you know apparently want the problems of the protocol to go away. We've not heard them saying this isn't helpful, that the rigorous implementation is no longer a, a credible option. And you know, they they just they they keep quiet about that, whereas every sort of facet of the government's uh, response is critiqued. In this very hostile fashion, and it's interesting. I think you know. Just we're coming back now to to point you made earlier about about looking at another political figure this week, David Trimble, who was implacably opposed to the protocol as undermining the work that he is being praised to the high heavens for having achieved back in nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, I mean, Lord Trimble was absolutely adamant that the protocol it, um, drove a coach and horses, to use his words, uh, through the Belfast Agreement. He argued that it demolished the principle of consent, more or less, because it made changes to Northern Ireland's con constitutional uh, status and edged us out of, of the UK without any kind of democratic mandate. And you know, as far as he was concerned, it had undermined his legacy and undermined the work that uh, undermined the achievements that he felt that he'd made, made through the um, Belfast Agreement. But that's not an angle that you will hear terribly much. Quite the opposite. People like Deirdre Heenan, um, you know, chastising uh, people for lauding Lord Trimble, who, who, who agree with the, the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. I think she chastised uh, Liz Truss for, for uh, destroying David Trimble's legacy. So, you know, it's just, once again, you know, it leaves you almost speechless with the kind of irony and the lack of, of self-awareness of some of this stuff. There is no doubt that Trimble was... Uh, the person to do the deal that was going to have to be done back in 1998. Um, and I doubt if, if that agreement, which had to happen at some stage, um, I think uh, Trimble was probably the person who was prepared to take the political risk of actually uh, making it happen. Yeah. And whatever you thought of, of David Trimble and his legacy, what you couldn't credibly deny was that he was a a sort of a, a, a towering figure, not only in Ulster unionism, but in, in, uh, in an international stage and, and certainly in a national stage. And he shaped the Northern Ireland we knew today. And it's just hard to compare uh, that kind of intellect and influence that, that he brought to bear on the union and, and on the shape of Northern Ireland with some of the kind of directionless and powerlessness that we've seen from unionism over the last few years without feeling a bit discouraged or, or even depressed but also the substantial figures of the time i mean you had uh john taylor ken mcginnis 
you know, the, the actual fight for the leadership of the, of the party when Trimble stood um, for leader, they were big figures in unionism, um, whereas more recently we've seen um, an almost, this is slightly unkind, but almost a Buggins turn um, version of who's going to be leader in the unionist party. Um, and I think that's, that says a lot about um, how we seem to have lost two things in unionism. One, I think, is a civility to actually um, have disagreements and to come away and to uh, agree to disagree and get on, maybe to pursue your own view, but not to disrespect the person making an alternative view. Um, and and uh, two, to actually have some bigger ideas in unionism. I think one of the things that uh, has not been mentioned greatly, and I think is actually quite important, uh, in David Trimble having set up the uh, Ulster Society. Uh, he was a, a principal um, figure in getting uh, that together, um, uh, publishing a regular uh, magazine, uh, which, was, which was a good read. It, lots of interesting articles from lots of different unionist perspectives and uh, different topics. Um, but I also thought it was important uh, that he actually framed that as the, as the uh, Ulster British or British Ulster um, uh, Society. You know, it was an Ulster Society, but it was British Ulster um, in its broadest sense uh, that was being explored rather than a narrow Ulster based on religion or language or, or some um, small part. It was a big... It was a big absorbing unionism. He was an arch evolutionist. At the same time, he did give his political considerations within the bigger constitutional context. Yeah, well, absolutely. Touching some very important uh, things there. Again, the devolution thing, I, I wouldn't have particularly been a fan of, but I've always argued, certainly in recent years, that rather than sort of liberal unionism and conservative unionism or however you want to frame it that the key divide within unionism is the sort of Ulster facing version of it that's happy being a place apart perhaps this is even a divide that you could extend you know across political parties in Northern Ireland rather than than just unionism or the, the version of it that's UK facing that uh, you know draws on, on Britishness on that kind of identity that is linked to an allegiance to, to, to this nation state that has shaped the, the, the modern world as we know it and certainly the Western values uh, that, that uh, pertain in, in the democratic part of it, uh, rather than, you know, a, a, a sort of a, a, a tribalism uh, or, or a, a way of looking at the world where, you know, what, what we don't want we we don't want the united ireland but we don't know what we do want or what we what our allegiance is to uh, uh this kind of community-based uh, type type unionism and trimble while he was a devolutionist was certainly part of that uh, kind of broader british civic kind of uh idea of unionism um that really is unionism at its best rather than unionism in it. it it's kind of more inward looking for. One thing I, I pick up there is that the United Kingdom is not, maybe relatively uniquely, 
is not really a nation state in the sense of a single identity. I mean, the, the actual essence of, of, of Britishness is you can have whatever identity you want um, within a broad set of liberal values. Uh, you, they may be Victorian liberal values. They may be values that we um, aspire to or we uh, consider ourselves as having without perhaps living them very well at times. It's, it's a bigger sense of state rather than something that is geographic or, again, religious or uh, in any way ethnic. It didn't arise out of nationalism. Uh, it arose out of a sense of place and purpose. Yes, and, and through institutions and a kind of ascetic mindedness and through history and a whole range of things. But yes, it was, a, it was something that was accessible to anybody and was accessible to um, you know, people who considered themselves even even from dif different nations and, and in terms of you know Ireland, Scotland, uh, uh, Wales, Wales and England, as well as all the people who who yeah. then subsequently came into to Britain from elsewhere. And I think that perhaps was again, although it's British, it was very much the idea of the future of Northern Ireland that at a point Trimble hoped would be created through the Belfast Agreement. Lots after that uh, happened, but let's let's take that point in time and just leave it there uh, for today. And I'm sure come back in the autumn uh, with a, a new prime minister and uh, hopefully a movement on a lot of fronts. Uh, exciting times. Exciting times or exciting times ahead.